wisdom because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for this passage of Scripture. In a world, Father, where it seems like the the way we communicate matters more than the message that we proclaim. In a world where it's so easy to forget what's the most important thing, you give us passages like this that remind us that God, you, you're, you have no foolishness in you. And if you did, it would be wiser than man's wisdom. You have no weakness in you, but if you did, your weakness would be stronger than man's strength. And what you have given us and what you have uh, gifted to us is the word of the cross. The gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. Help us to stay focused and centered on that and to grow in you accordingly. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, let's reread uh, just a couple verses. First uh, Corinthians chapter one verse eighteen, and we're going to go all the way through twenty for this first section. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. For it is written, "I will destroy the wisdom of the wise; I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent." Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? See, verse 18 starts with the word for. And so when we see the word for, what Paul's doing is he's saying, this is built upon everything else that I've been saying so far. So as we get to the meat of of 1 Corinthians, Paul is looking back to everything that he's already said in the letter. So we need to remember the context of what he's writing and who he's writing to. He's writing to a church that he loves, even though that it's a church with lots of issues. It is by no means a perfect church. It's more akin to a church in Hermley than a church in Ira. Amen? I'm just kidding. Paul planted this church. He stayed with this church for about a year and a half, training up people within the church, putting pastors in place, putting deacons in place, putting their organizational structure in place so that they can reach their community in Corinth better. And then Paul leaves and he continues on his his missionary journey. And then all of a sudden, they're writing letters to him with questions about what they're doing. He's writing back to him. And then he gets wind that he wrote letters to him and they didn't really listen to what he said. And they took what he said and they kind of twisted it to fit their own agenda and what they were wanting to do. And so now Paul is writing them back another letter after he's heard all of these reports that have taken place. I imagine for the church, it's like the old days when they used to mail your report cards to you and the internet wasn't a thing yet. Al Gore hadn't invented it. Where I grew up, they would mail your report card to you. And so if you had a post office box key, which I may or may not have had, and could get there before your mom could check the mail, you might be able to buy yourself a few days before she realized your report card was missing. So if there were bad grades, like I had in algebra and in Spanish and in chemistry, I could at least delay the inevitable. But I knew that it was coming. And maybe you were that way, you got a bad grade, and you knew that, man, when your parents find out, it's not going to be good. 
And then all of a sudden you look up and mom's holding a report card and you know, I'm about to be grounded for the rest of my life. I'm going to have to pull weeds or do some other kinds of things. That's what's happening with this church. Paul's writing this letter, and this letter's for the church, and so they receive the letter, and you know that the church knows that they're going to get in trouble. You know that the church knows that they've been doing things that they're not supposed to be doing, and so they're up there reading the letter together, and it's this kind of angst that's building within them of, we know that we're in trouble, we know we're going to get in trouble, we've delayed it as long as we can, now Paul wrote a letter to us, what is he going to say? And Paul very much treats himself as like a spiritual father to this church who is lovingly going to show them the hard love that they need to hear. And so last week what we saw was the main issue with this church, the main thing that Paul takes up in this whole letter that he writes, one of the longer letters that Paul writes, is this idea of unity in the church. All of their issues point back to this issue of not being unified. So unity is not simply just agreeing with one another over everything completely and fully. right? We have a, a huge disagreement between Wade and I on the best breakfast at men's breakfast. And as much as I would like to disfellowship Wade for it, we're not going to. But he's wrong. It's the gravy casserole, not the French toast casserole. Now that's not unity. Unity isn't that we like the exact same thing all of the time over every single little secondary thing. That's not unity. But unity is also not having two opposing sides and compromising in the middle. That doesn't work either because if one side decides to go further into that way and then you compromise in the middle, you slowly drift out of where you're supposed to be. Unity is understanding what's the main point. What's the main purpose? What is the most important thing that we have to be unified on? And then everything else that flows from that, we can have disagreements on secondary things and tertiary things, but as long as we keep the main thing the main thing, then we can have unity. We're not robots, we're not puppets, and we're not supposed to be exactly like one another. And one of the points that Paul will get to at the church in Corinth is everybody has been given gifts to use in the church, and nobody's gifts are exactly the same, but they're all meant to be used in the church for the glory of the Lord. So we'll have disagreements. We're not going to be completely the same on all things. But we can still have unity. And so Paul addresses this at the very beginning of the letter we looked at last week by opening up by saying that some of you guys are making these secondary things primary things and it's causing this disunity. And so what we saw was certain people liked their Sunday school teacher better than other people's Sunday school teacher. Some people said, well, I like Paul. And if you don't like Paul, then you're wrong. In fact, Paul wrote this letter. You wait, he'll back me up. Another said, well, I like Peter. Peter's the the chief of the apostles. Peter's the one who talked with Jesus the most. When we read scripture, Peter's the apostle who speaks the most. He's clearly the leader of the apostles, and he was an instrumental and huge figure in the early church. And so you had some who were saying, well, I follow after Peter. And others say, well, we follow after Apollos. And Apollos, was, it gets mentioned several times in Corinthians. From what we know of Apollos, he wasn't an apostle, but he was a very gifted speaker. And Priscilla and Aquila take him aside, they correct his theology, and then they send him back to continue preaching and proclaiming, and apparently he was really good at it. And then you have others who say, well, we follow Christ. 
And on the surface, we think that's the group you want to be in. But what this group was doing was they were saying our favorite, like it's just hyper kind of spiritual identity as opposed to they weren't really glorifying Christ. They're using Christ to glorify themselves. I follow Christ, thus I'm better than you. My favorite book is the Bible. My favorite movie is the Bible. My favorite meal is the Lord's Supper. That's this kind of group. And Paul is saying, that's not unity. If you believe who you follow is more important than everybody else, and if they don't follow exactly like you with your favorite Sunday school teacher, then they're somehow uh, unsuperior to you. You're missing the point of what's primary. And those divisions start fleshing themselves out in the church. And so Paul cuts through all of their nonsense in, in verse 17. And I'm going to read verse 17 because I think it's a, a fitting uh, summary of the last section and it also helps us understand what he's saying. So this is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. For Christ did not send me, that's Paul, Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel. Not with eloquent wisdom, for the cross of Christ will be emptied of its effect. For... The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. See, what Paul's doing is he's saying, this idea that you have, that it's the the mode, the method of the message is not as important as the message. The content of what is being said matters more than how it's being said. Or who is saying it. As Paul says, the contrast is between man's word and God's word. That's the the dichotomy he's setting up. And it's preaching. It's a message. It's the content. And Paul says that the content of that message looks Foolish to those who don't believe it. And what does he tell us? That it's the word of the cross. Now, we view crosses differently than the first century people reading this letter would have viewed them. It was how you were executed. The Roman way that they would kill people publicly to dissuade you from doing anything wrong. You'd walk into a big city and there'd be people nailed to a cross and you would go, I better mind my P's and Q's and make sure I'm on my best behavior and not to rebel because I don't want to end up like those people were ending up. So imagine then if for us to understand kind of how they would view a cross is if instead of going to your grandma's house and she's got her cross wall, you walk into your grandma's house and there's just electric chairs decorated and ornately hung up on the wall. It's her electric chair wall. She got them at a flea market. Imagine images of lethal injection being blown up to huge sizes and put on the side of the highway so that everybody who drives by would see the images of the lethal. That's what we're talking about. Crucifixion was a brutal punishment. It was meant to inflict the maximum amount of pain on somebody without killing them. It was meant to deter deter wrongdoing. Ultimately, the cause of death when you were crucified was not pain, it was suffocation. 
You would be so physically tired and so worn out that you couldn't press on the nails in your legs, you couldn't pull on the nails on your hands anymore to get a breath. And so you would die. This is why we see this in the Gospels. The Romans, when they tried to speed up deaths on crucifixions, they would come through and break the legs of those hanging. Because then you can't, it's even more painful to pull yourself up. It's a shame. When they crucified, you were naked. You hung there naked. The shame and the embarrassment. There's blood. I mean, it's a horrific and a very public way to die. And Paul is saying the word of the cross, the word of that death, bloody and gory and shameful, is foolishness to those who are perishing. We can understand that in a worldly sense. I get why that would be foolish to a lot of people. Anybody on a cross is not a good noble person, right? If you see someone on a cross, they're a a criminal, they're a convict, they've done something terrible, they're not good character, There's, there's no beloved king who's supposed to be hanging on the cross. The cross is for those who are weak and for those who are wrong, not for those who are strong. But that's man's wisdom. Paul says it's the power of God to us who are being saved. Hanging on that cross makes no sense to the world, but if we're being saved by the Lord, it makes complete and perfect sense. It's the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. We believe God is omniscient. We believe God is all-powerful. We believe God is God, and he could have sent Jesus at any point in history. He could have sent Jesus now and died of lethal injection, but that's not what he did. He sent him 2,000 years ago and Christ comes and he dies on a cross on purpose. Because there is pain there. There is suffering there. There is humiliation there. Because kings and saviors and messiahs and lords, God's not supposed to die that way. Not supposed to do that. It's foolish to the world. What's the opposite of foolish? Wise. But Paul doesn't say it's the wisdom of God here in this passage, in this verse. He says it's the power of God. Why? Because he knows the church he's writing to. And that this church is tempted to see those who are the wisest within their community as to be kind of above everybody else. They just got over, Paul just addressed them arguing about their favorite Sunday school teacher. And and, and the interesting thing is every person that Paul mentions in that list is orthodox, that they're sound. They're not teaching false doctrines. Apollos, Peter, Paul, it's the same message that they're proclaiming. They're just proclaiming it with their each unique individual identities. They're not heretics. It's not a false gospel. It's the message of the gospel. It's the proclamation of the word of the cross is what they're proclaiming. But slowly, over the course of time, what's happening is, as human wisdom infiltrates, we slowly begin to see the cross as foolish. And so we move away from it. What Paul says, instead of saying the word of the cross is wisdom, 
He says it's power. Because true power has the capacity to change people on the inside out. That's the power of the cross that nothing else really holds. See, so many people, the goal of our life, we go into adulthood and the goal is in some form or some fashion to leave the world just a slightly better place than when we found it. Whether it's for their kids, whether it's for their grandkids, right? You'll hear things like, I just want to leave my mark or I want to be respected in the community. I want to be respected by my family. I want my kids to have it better than I had it. That's the whole goal of life for so many people. And what Paul is saying is that kind of change that takes place in our hearts is not geared to make our lives better. It's geared to glorify the word of the Lord, the foolishness of the cross. And you catch the tense of the verb. To those who are being saved. At the moment we believe in Jesus, the moment we put our faith in Christ, the moment that we receive the grace from the Lord, we are saved. We are justified in that moment. It's a legal word. We are counted as righteous. But the rest of our life is not lived out just in doing nothingness. The rest of our life is we are continually being more and more saved. We're being sanctified. We're growing in the Lord more and more. We're not perfect, but we're being perfected by Christ. We're continually being saved. So we still repent of sins. And the more mature we get in Christ, the quicker we should repent of sins. Maturity in the faith is not necessarily, we sin less, but the real sign of maturity in the faith is when we sin, we turn to Christ a lot quicker than we used to. We're being saved. And we're being saved not to build up our own kingdoms, not to build up our own platforms, not to be social media superstars. To build up the body of Christ. We're being saved to display the gospel of Jesus as best as we can because it's foolishness to the world. But to us, if we're being saved, it's where true power comes from. It's the simple message of the cross. Because it's on the cross that we see what we deserve and we see how much God loves us. That we are rescued, we are redeemed, we are saved, we are uh, uh, forgiven. Our, our lives are completely changed when we understand the cross. We're, we're stuck in the same sinful nature, seeking to do more and to be better by our own definitions and our own ideas, trying to do whatever it is in life that we feel like is the most important thing. But outside of the cross, outside of the gospel, all of those things at the end leave us empty and incomplete. We, we talked about it a little bit this morning. Uh, Mr. Jones in here, so I teach the, the Sunday school class. We talked about it a little bit in the Sunday school class. We, we can get upset at the transgender movement, and we can get upset with homosexuality. Because what they do is they take the, the power of God, the gospel of Jesus, and they say, that's foolish. What truth really is, is I'm going to be who I'm going to be on the inside, and I'm going to let that be displayed on the outside. Ultimately, that's what all sin is. 
Who I am on the inside is what I'm going to put on the outside and be. And so they're seeking some kind of peace, some kind of comfort, some kind of acceptance, something for them to have purpose and to have value. And brothers and sisters, if we believe in the cross of Jesus Christ, you need to understand transgendered people and homosexuals are not our enemies. They have been lied to and trapped by the enemy. And we ought to lovingly and graciously share the simple truth of the cross of Jesus Christ with them because that's where our ultimate power comes from. It's the power of God to change us. It's the power of God to sustain us. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. So in our our minds and in our our hearts, if we ever get to a point where we're like, I think I've got the cross of Christ down, but I want to do something else to reach our community. Let's make preaching more like a party. Let's do all sorts of gimmicks to kind of draw people to Jesus and make it easier to believe in Jesus. And then we'll tell them about the cross later. If that's what we believe, that's not the word of the cross. If that's what we believe, then we're buying into man's wisdom and not the Lord's wisdom. Our plan to reach Ira is not through events, it's not through pragmatism, it's not drawing people with our cleverness or our creativeness or our abilities. Look, you've, you've, I've been here long enough, I've maxed out, like I've, I've got no surprises for you. <laughs> Morgan and I joke, my personality starts out strong and then over the course of time just wanes on people and Morgan's kind of grows the opposite direction. Our plan to reach Ira must be the word of the cross. It is the power of God to us who are being saved. Now like we said, Paul's going to talk about gifts within the church and how those are used for the glory of God. And each person within the church has been given gifts by God. Creativity and cleverness and abilities are not suppressed in the Bible. Instead, they're used to build up and to glorify God through the word of the cross. They're a means to an end that God has given us. And what Paul does is he quotes here Isaiah. He says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. In Isaiah, Isaiah is prophesying and saying that, that Assyria is going to besiege Jerusalem, but they're going to fail. And what ends up happening is uh, Sennacherib, the king of the Assyrians, tries to conquer Judah and he fails, but he fails for a very interesting reason. And it's why Paul quotes this here. It wasn't because Judah's army was stronger. And it wasn't because Judah's kings and generals had better war plans than than he had. Judah was saved by God's power with no human help. 185,000 Assyrians were destroyed by one of God's angels. This is Isaiah 37, 36. Then the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 to the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. It's like the opposite of Christmas. These prophets had told the people, this is what the Lord's going to do. They're going to attack and they're not going to cede and they will not win, but it's not because you're strong, it's not because you're smart, it's not because you're clever, it's because the Lord is on your side. And they wake up and the battle's already been fought. They wake up to the carnage. Wisdom. 
Godly wisdom is understanding that you and I are not that wise. I used to joke with students, I will never be as smart as I was the day I graduated from high school. It's just been downhill since then. God's wisdom is understanding that we are not wise. And when we understand that we are not as wise as we think we are, it brings about humility. Because it's the humble. It's the needy. It's the unwise by worldly standards that God saves. There's no room for personal pride and salvation. A part of coming to Christ is understanding you're not good enough. That you need a Savior and you will never want to need a Savior if you think you're all that. Only God can save you. You cannot save yourself. And so Paul lays out the power of God and the foolishness of worldly wisdom and then he asks some questions meant to poke and kind of prod the people that he's talking to. He says, where's the one who's wise? It's a reference to the philosophers. The Corinthians loved these philosophers. But what do they offer you? What can philosophy do? Can philosophy save you? No. It can tell you there's a problem, but it cannot give you the solution. Paul says, where is the teacher of the law? This would be experts in the Jewish law, or it might be a reference to when the Assyrians took over, since he just quoted Isaiah. They would send scribes with their their troops so that they could scribe down and write down all of the rewards that they had gained from winning the battle, except the Assyrians, that was pointless to have scribes at that battle because God wiped them out with an angel. Paul says, where's the debater of this age? These are the trolls on social media. The people who would sit and argue philosophy nonstop. They would sit in the public square and they would depend on their own wisdom and their own quick wit and their own tongues to argue back and forth what we should believe and what we shouldn't believe and how we should think and how we shouldn't think. They would question and they would answer and they would work to prove and to refine their own beliefs, their own wisdom. And what Paul's pointing out is that they're debaters of this age. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Of a temporal debate. What Paul says is, what about when Jesus comes back? Where will those arguers be? Does that kind of moralism save? Does that kind of legalism save? Does that that kind of feel-good thoughts and, and ideas save? Or does it merely kind of kick the can of the inevitable down the road? And Paul asks the last question, hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? There's no denying that the Corinthians were very smart. There's no denying that many of the Corinthians could speak very well. They were rhetorically gifted. But in and of their own capacities, they're foolish. Because if in the end your wisdom, all of your gifts, all of your abilities lead you to trust yourself more, it fails you over and over again. If your gifts and your abilities leave you trusting yourself more than trusting Christ, it's foolishness. It's worthless. Well, hasn't the world's wisdom made us better off? No. Instead, every technological advancement we get 
we find new ways to express old sins. Find new ways to express self-satisfaction. We find new ways to be more complacent in life. The problem with human wisdom is it can show us that there's an issue. It can show us the problems, but it has no power in and of itself to actually fix them. It sees selfishness for what it is. That it creates injustice, that it creates all sorts of issues, but it cannot remove the selfishness from the people's hearts. It sees hatred for what it is, misery and pain and destruction, yet it cannot remove and put love in the hearts of people who believe in it. It sees the lack of unity, man fighting man and not getting along for what it is, but it has no way of actually bringing them together completely and fully. And so as the world spins, if we depend on human wisdom, which are we largely do, We can see how the outer part of our lives might improve, right? Praise the Lord for air conditioning. While the inner part of our lives continue to deteriorate. Because the real issues, the most important issues, cannot be solved by human wisdom. So peace, joy, hope, harmony, brotherhood, every aspiration of man is out of reach if what we're using to reach it is human wisdom. Here's the good news. God's made it that way on purpose. That's why our goal here is to be gospel-centered in everything that we do. To build up a healthy church. That's why we're not going to emotionally manipulate anyone. I desperately want you to believe in Jesus Christ, but, but, but I, if I trick you into believing, it's not true belief and it does nothing for you and it does nothing for us. I cannot save you. But what I can do is proclaim to you what is foolish by the world's standards, but is the power of God, the word of the cross. goal is that when you come here in whatever capacity it may be that you encounter Christ wherever you're at and the Lord moves you just a little bit deeper in Jesus. So if you're an unbeliever that God would poke and pull and prod at your heart to repent and to turn and to believe in Christ. And if you're a believer the Lord would poke and prod and pull at your heart to repent and grow deeper into Jesus until God finally calls us home. Worldly wisdom, wisdom doesn't ultimately work. Why? 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 21. For since in God's wisdom the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believed through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews ask for signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness for the Gentiles. So Paul lays it out for us very clearly and very simply. You cannot know the saving knowledge of God through only worldly wisdom. He says in verse 21, For since in God's wisdom the world did not know God through wisdom, all people without exception lack the saving knowledge of God when we're born. God has made it this way for a reason, that man's knowledge and man's philosophies will change over the course of time, and that it's really just the same thing, just repackaged in different ways, but it's not going to actually solve the problems that plague our society. The more we look to ourselves, the more we depend on ourselves, the worse off we actually are. 
our situation gets worse. It does not get better. And Paul tells us we cannot come to a saving knowledge of God on our own. That man cannot solve his problems on his own. Because man, in his own wisdom, cannot see or understand the source of the issues. Without the special revelation of the world, without the Bible, we would never understand that it is sin that's plaguing us. We can understand the symptoms of sin, but not understand that it's our rebellion against God that is doing this. And if we cannot see our issues as sin against God, then we cannot understand how to be saved. Human wisdom recognizes the problem and it has zero power to change it. It is only when human wisdom recognizes the problem and recognizes its own inability to solve the problem that we can make some progress. That the power of the cross is revealed. It's only when man turns to Jesus and believes in Christ that he is saved. And listen to what Paul said. God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. God's not begrudgingly going, oh man, they turned to the cross. I guess I have to save them now. It's a joy. God sees your heart and he sees my heart completely and fully. He sees all of us for who we are deep down in our core. He knows you and he knows me better than you and I know ourselves. He knows all the good, he knows all the bad, he knows all the ugly, and God is still pleased to save those who come to him. There's nothing about you that shocks God. He knows the depth of your sin. He knows the darkness of your thoughts, the full extent of your rebellion against sin, and it still pleases Jesus to save us. That we're saved not by by being convinced of the logicalness of salvation like the philosophers may try to do. We're saved not because the best and the brightest minds in America gathered together to figure out what the best course of action for us should be. We're saved because we believe in Jesus Christ, period, the end. And what that means, that belief means a complete assent, a complete agreement to all the truths of the saving grace of God. That God saves only those who believe. He's not bending the rules for anyone. Complete and full belief is the way to salvation, not man's wisdom, but God's wisdom, which is the foolishness of the cross, the power of God. That's why we continue to preach and teach and be centered on the gospel of Jesus, because we have what the world needs. Verse 22, because the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. We preach Christ crucified, stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. We have what lost people need. They don't need our insights. They don't need our cleverness. They don't need our entertainment value. They don't need our inside jokes. They don't need our sympathy. They don't need our judgment. They don't need our programs. They don't need our ministries. They don't need our culture. They don't need our values. What they need is Christ and Him crucified, proclaimed to them. Not signs. Jesus did plenty of signs and wonders and miracles and people still did not believe in him. What they need is the foolishness of the cross proclaimed to them over and over. They don't need wisdom. Jesus outwitted the wisest of the wise people and they still did not believe in him. What they need is a stumbling block thrown into their lives that will trip them up and cause them to question everything. Foolishness. 
that proves that their wisdom fails. They need us to proclaim Christ crucified in our place. It's the simple message of the gospel that opens the doors for salvation. It's the simple message of the gospel that opens the doors for sanctification. They don't need us. They need Jesus. And Jesus is who we need too. Because, verse 24, Yet those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Called is the word Paul uses here for salvation. Have you you noticed how Paul talks about salvation in this whole passage? He does it with different tenses. It's foolishness, it's the power of God to those who are being saved. That God was pleased to save. And now we see this idea of God's called. It's interesting what Paul is saying to us. He's not saying all Jews and Greeks will be saved. But he's saying that those who are believers will come from both Jews and Greeks. For us who are called to salvation by God, Jesus is the key. One of the easiest ways to spot false teachers is to see how they talk about Jesus. Because a true and genuine Christian understands what Paul is saying here, that Jesus is the power and the wisdom of God, that Jesus is God, God in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity. So, so look, listen to what Paul is saying. If God had any foolishness in him, which God does not, it would be wiser than all of human wisdom multiplied together. If God had any weakness in him, which he does not, it would be stronger than any, all, of mascul- all of mankind's human strength multiplied together. Human wisdom and human strength do not lead to a saving knowledge of God. So if we depend on our creativity if we depend on our brilliance, if we depend on our strength, if we depend on our knowledge, if we depend on our personalities, if we depend on our experiences, if we depend on our traditions, if we depend on us in any form or any capacity, it is not enough to save us. That's not how God does this. That's not how God reveals His saving knowledge. The gospel shows God's wisdom. So what is seen as foolish and weak by the world is actually wiser and stronger than anything the world could ever come up with. Human wisdom doesn't show us how to be saved. It shows us that we need to be saved. That we need something else. And what the gospel does, the true power of God, the word of the cross, can reach into our hearts and affect change in a way that's real. That it's true power, that it's true change, that it's true purpose, that it's true wisdom that is foolishness to the world. Think about it. 2,000 years ago, a Middle Eastern man born to two rural teenagers in a podunk town, not even in a hospital, but in a barn, with more uh, animals watching his birth than people. And his mom's running around claiming to be a virgin, which is true, but we can understand why that would sound foolish to those who don't believe. That outside of one trip to Egypt when he was an infant, never really wandered or outside of this 100-mile range. 
We're never told in the Bible that Jesus wrote a book. We're never told in the Bible that Jesus penned a letter. We're never told in the Bible that Jesus is, is good with the sword, that he could lead like a king is supposed to lead, pick up a sword and just was really great at dueling. But somehow this man, 2,000 years ago, gathers this group of 12 other men who were just this mixed bag of weird people. Mainly fishermen. And we've talked about it before. My favorite things with the apostles that are fishing is most of the time when we see them fishing in Scripture, they're not catching fish that Jesus has to help them. Throw in a tax collector who works for the government that's oppressing your people and nobody likes him. Throw in a zealot. A zealot is someone who's politically trying to overthrow the government that nobody likes. Can you imagine Jesus looking at those two and saying, you have to get along? It's an unimpressive mixture of people. There's not one person of nobility. There's not one person of wealth. There's not one person of status. None of them have a home that they live in all of the time. None of them are kings. None of them are rulers. None of them are anything special in and of themselves. Yet that's who Christ chooses to use. But because the message of that man was delivered, it caused a big enough issue with the religious elites. Right? Did you catch none of the apostles were religious elites either? Not a Pharisee or scribe among them. They sought to kill Jesus. And so finally they worked their way. They connived the system. They know the legal system. They know their own laws. They're scribes and they're Pharisees. And they break multiple of their own laws to get Jesus to the point where Christ can be crucified. And so Pilate, the Roman governor, not Jewish, stands Jesus up and he says, Fine, if you want to do this, here's Jesus and here's a murderer. Pick who you want me to crucify. Worldly wisdom would tell us the murderer. You don't want him at your VBS. Yet what do the Pharisees do? Stir up the crowd to cheer for Jesus. Can you imagine what the murderer is thinking? Knows he's guilty. Knows that he deserves death. Knows that his death is not going to be lethal injection quickly, but will be a cross and will be extremely painful. Yet at the last second, this no-name person shows up, takes his place, and he's free. And so Jesus picks up his cross, and he carries it to Golgotha. He's nailed to the cross, and he's hung between two other criminals, and the people continue to mock him on the cross. If you're the Messiah, if you're really God, what are you doing on that? If you're really God, pull yourself off the cross. God would be able to do that. If you're God, do it. How can you save anybody else if you cannot save yourself? That's worldly wisdom. And one of the convicts joins in. Remember I said suffocation is what kills you on the cross? And so you have this convict who's seated next to Jesus who takes the pain to pull himself up to get a breath and then to continue taunting Jesus who's also on a cross. His last breaths he's using to strengthen to make fun of the guy next to him. And then the man on the other side says, what are you doing? You and I deserve this punishment, but he does not. 
And Jesus looks at that man and he says, today you will be with me in paradise. Do you know that guy was never baptized? He never made one church business meeting or potluck. All he knows is that while he is physically dying, Jesus saves his life. Not his physical life, but his spiritual life. That the wrath of God is poured out on Jesus Christ, and it's a wrath that you and I earn, that you and I deserve for all of our sin that rebels us against God, that Jesus takes that cup of wrath and he drinks every single last drop so that the foolishness of the cross is actually God taking our wrath that we deserve all of it. He does what we cannot do. Jesus lives a sinless life. He deserves eternal life. And instead, he's right, instead, he dies for you and I if we're believers in Jesus Christ. And he gives up his spirit, which shows us he's in control the entire time. And the earth shakes. And the curtain in the temple is torn from top to bottom. And people come out of the graves. People are resurrected from this if you've read the Gospels. And there's a Roman soldier looking at Jesus and he realizes what he did. Surely this man is who he said he was. A murderer set free while Jesus takes his place. A convict saved and brought into eternal life without ever being baptized, without ever taking the Lord's Supper, or knowing what fellowship within the church is supposed to be, simply believing in Jesus Christ. A soldier who helped put Jesus on the cross. Coming to an understanding of what Jesus did and who Jesus is. You know who we don't see changed by the cross? Hard-hearted people who trust man's wisdom over God's. God's power is not displayed with signs and with wonders, but through the man Jesus Christ, the man God Jesus Christ crucified on the cross, robbed of all dignity, exposed to the most degrading form of death conceivable, bearing the sin and shame of his people. True wisdom is worshiping the God who loves his people so much that he dies for them. Every other religion is human wisdom wrapped up in a package that says you have to earn your way to God. Only true godly wisdom talks about how God comes to us and saves us. So tell me what's more foolish. Knowing the issue and having no way to fix it. Or trusting that Christ dealt with the ultimate issue on the cross. That Jesus died so I can live. That's the gospel message that we proclaim. Christ crucified. That's where there's real power found in the gospel. Power of salvation from sin, power of deliverance from Satan, and power of life in God's very presence for all eternity. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But it is the power of God to us who are being saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the cross. Help us, God, to be diligent and to be firm and to be close-fisted and that we will not move on from the cross. 
We will not shift and we will not change on the gospel. That that is who we are. People absolutely and utterly and completely dependent on you for everything. Help us this morning as we sing a song of reflection. That we would remember the cross. God, for the believers who are here, help us to remember the cross. To understand that that's what sustains us in life. For unbelievers who are here, help them to hear the foolishness of the cross and understand that that is the true power. That you came and you died in our place to bear the wrath of our sin which we deserved. Not because we're great, not because we're awesome, but because you're great and you're awesome. That you died for us because you love us. Help us this morning to worship you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.